years ago and would be sufficient either to overturn all conventionally accepted ideas of human and geological evolution or to prove that a shoe-wearing biped from another world had once visited this planet. Meister made his potentially disturbing find during a rock and fossil hunting expedition to Antelope Springs, 43 miles west of Delta, Utah. He was accompanied by his wife and two daughters and by Mr. and Mrs. Francis Shape and their two daughters. The party had already discovered several fossils of trilobites when Meister split open a two-inch thick slab of rock with his hammer and discovered the outrageous print. The rock fell open like a book revealing on one side the footprint of a human with trilobites right in the footprint itself. The other half of the rock slab showed an almost perfect mold of the footprint and fossils. Amazingly, the human was wearing a sandal. Trilobites were small marine invertebrates, the relatives of crabs and shrimps that flourished for some 320 million years before becoming extinct 280 million years ago. Humans are currently thought to have emerged between 1 and 2 million years ago and to have been wearing well-shaped footwear for no more than a few thousand years. The sandals that seems to have crushed a living trilobite was 10 and a quarter inches long and three and a half inches wide. The heel is indented slightly more than the sole as a human shoe print would be. Meister took the rock to Melvin Cook, a professor of metallurgy at the University of Utah who advised him to show him the specimen and to the university geologists. When Meister was unable to find a geologist willing to examine the print, he went to a local newspaper, the Desert News. Before long, the find received national publicity. In a subsequent news conference, the curator of the Museum of Earth Science at the University of Utah, James Madden, said, There were no men 600 million years ago. Neither were there monkeys or bears or ground sloths to make pseudo-human tracks. What man-thing could possibly have been walking about on this earth before vertebrates even evolved? Madsen then went on to say that the fossil must have been formed by a natural process, though of what kind he was unable to suggest. Dr. Jesse Jennings of the university's anthropology department guessed rather boldly, considering the absence of any supporting visual evidence, that the print might have been made by one large trilobite coming to rest on three smaller ones. Then on July 20, 1968, the Antelope Springs site was examined by Dr. Clifford Burdick, a consulting geologist from Tucson, Arizona, who soon found the impression of a child's foot in a bed of shale. The impression, he said, was about six inches in length, with the toes spreading as if the child had never yet worn shoes, which compressed the toes. There does not appear to be much of an arch, and the big toe is not prominent. The print was shown to two geologists and a paleontologist. One of the geologists agreed that it appeared to be that of a human being, but the paleontologist's opinion was that no biological agent had been involved. Mr. Burdick stuck to his guns. The rock chanced to fracture along the front of the toes before the fossil footprint was found. On cross-section, the fabric of the rock stands out in fine laminations, or bedding planes. Where the toes pressed into the soft material, the laminations were bowed downward from the horizontal, indicating a weight that had been pressed into the mud. Then in August of 1968, Mr. Dean Bitter, an educator in the Salt Lake City public school system, claimed to have discovered two more prints of shoes or sandals in the Antelope Springs area. 
According to Professor Cook, no trilobites were injured by these footfalls, but a small trilobite was found near the prints in the same rock, indicating that the small sea creature and the sandal wanderer might have been contemporaries. Has man been on the earth for millions of years, as indicated by the find of William J. Meister? We'll never know. I'd like to thank everyone for watching Unexplained Mysteries. Hi, my name is Steven Sandoni, and I'm your host for Unexplained Mysteries Part 2. In Part 2, we will focus on three stories, all regarding ancient footprints. These stories can be found in a book written entitled Mysteries of the Unexplained in Reader's Digest. Our first story takes place in 1882. Huge footprints strongly resembling those of a human wearing shoes were found in a layer of sandstone in the yard of the state prison near Carson City, Nevada during quarrying operations. The prints were from 18 to 20 inches long and about 8 inches wide. The stride was from 2.5 feet to more than 3 feet and the distance between the left and the right tracks, the straddle, was 18 or 19 inches. Numerous other tracks of animals resembling horses, deer, elephants and wolves were found in the same layer of sandstone. Since the size of the prints and the age of the rock in which they were found, from 2 to 3 million years, argued against a human or even a hominid origin, the prints were ascribed to a more acceptable source, a giant ground sloth. It is thought that these animals could stand upright but only by using their tails as additional support. However, no trail of a tail was found at this site. It was also suggested that the animal may have walked on four feet, but that its hind feet fell almost exactly into the tracks left by its front feet, thereby creating a bipedal impression. But this fails to account for the fact that the prints showed no evidence of toe marks. This information can be found in the American Journal of Science, July through December of 1883. And now on to our second story. The second story features the imprint of a leather shoe, which was found in a Triassic limestone in Fisher Canyon, Persian County, Nevada, in 1927 by Alfred E. Knapp. According to microphotographs of the print, the leather was hand-stitched with a finer thread than was customarily used by shoemakers in 1927. Triassic limestone is conventionally dated as between 100 and 225 million years old. This information can be found in a book entitled Mysteries of Time and Space by Brad Steiger. And now on to our third story about a human footprint found near Demirkapru, Turkey. The footprint that was found was of a human being apparently fleeing towards the Gedits River from a volcanic eruption which was discovered in volcanic ash during the construction of a dam near Demirkapru, Turkey, in 1970. The age of the ash was determined to be 250,000 years by the Turkish Mineral Research and Exploration Institute in Ankara, Turkey, and the print was pronounced human by the National Laboratories of Forensic Science in Sweden. And if so, whoever made the print was an antidescendant of Neanderthal man. I pose the question to you now, has man been on the planet for hundreds of thousands or possibly millions of years? In part three of our ongoing series of Mysteries of the Unexplained, we will research giants. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening to Unexplained Mysteries Part 2. Hi, my name is Steven Sandoni, and thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of Unexplained Mysteries Part 3. In today's program, I will put the spotlight on giants. The information can be found in Reader's Digest in a book entitled, Mysteries of the Unexplained. Our first story takes place in Ohio. At the center of one of the large Ohio burial mounds, excavators in 1891 found the skeleton of a massive man wrapped in copper armor. On the head was a copper cap and copper moldings encased the jaw. The arms were clad in copper and so were the chest and stomach. On either side of the head were wooden antlers encased in copper and the mouth cavity was filled with immense but decayed pearls. Around the neck was a necklace of bear's teeth inlaid with pearls. Beside the skeleton of the giant lay that of a woman. The remains were found at a depth of 14 feet in a mound 500 feet long, 200 feet wide, and 28 feet high. The information can be found in a publication called Nature. The publication was dated December 17, 1891. And our second story is about a skeleton 9 feet 8 inches tall which was recovered from a stone burial mound at Brewersville, Indiana in 1879. A mica necklace was around the neck and a crude human image of burnt clay embedded with pieces of flint stood at the feet. The mound between three and five feet high and 71 feet in diameter was excavated by Indiana archaeologists, scientific observers from New York and Ohio, a local physician, Dr. Charles Green, and the owner of the property on which the mound stood, a Mr. Robinson. The bones were kept by the Robinson family in a basket in a nearby grain mill. They were lost when a flood swept away the mill in 1937. This information can be found in the Indianapolis News, November 10th, 1975. And our third story is a rather bizarre story to say the least. Seven skeletons were found in a burial mound near Clearwater, Minnesota in 1888. They had double rows of teeth in the upper and lower jaws and had been buried in a sitting position facing the lake. The foreheads were unusually low and sloping with prominent brows. The information can be found in the St. Paul and Minneapolis Pioneer News which was dated July 1st, 1888. And I would like to go now to the Bible to see if there are any references at all mentioned to giants. Let us start by going to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and as they bore children to them, the same became mighty, which were of old men of renown. And the next reference can be found in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verse 33. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which came of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. And now I will reference the Book of Giants. The Book of Giants was a work apparently composed in Syriac, an eastern dialect of Aramaic. The book was entirely lost until the 12th century, but scant references of it survived in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic, indicating that it involved battles of the ancient giants. Then, about a century ago, many highly fragmentary Manichaean works written in Central Asian languages were recovered archaeologically in Turfan in China, and much of the find 
remains unpublished even at present. And I would like now to reference the Epic of Gilgamesh, what is claimed as the oldest surviving epic story in the world. The Epic of Gilgamesh also includes a reference to giants. Gilgamesh and Enkidu go together to fight the evil Humbaba at the Cedar Mountains. The evil giant's face was like a lion, a roar like a flood, a mouth of flames, breath that burns trees, and teeth like a dragon. In the end, they cut off his head. Based on the information that I have cited here, and the biblical references, and the folklore, and the mysteries that surround the giants, it seems pretty clear that giants have walked among us in ancient times. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Unexplained Mysteries Part 3. Hi, my name is Steven Sindoni, and welcome to another edition of Mystery of the Unexplained. Today in Part 4, our story is entitled The Abominable Snowman, which can be found in a book entitled Mystery of the Unexplained, put out and published by Reader's Digest. Since the sensational term Abominable Snowman burst upon a startled and delighted world, it has become clear that there is not just one big hairy upright hominid haunting the wild places, but a varied and widespread clan. As reports of sightings accumulate, it seems that there may be at least three different types of yeti in the Tibetan Himalayan area, small, large, and extra large, all or none of which may be related. Only the large one seems to have any relationship to Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the skunk ape of the Everglades, Momo the Missouri monster, and other American varieties. The Chinese ape-man bears a strong resemblance to this group, but the Russian captor seems to be in a class by itself. Are these different geographic races of the same species or several different types with nothing in common but an upright stance and a lot of hair? Indeed, how do they compare? John Green, famous Sasquatch hunter, takes a stab at answering. In very approximate terms, the North American variety is a good deal larger than the others, while the Russian one is taller than the Himalayan, but perhaps not heavier. The Himalayan creature, on the evidence both of its description and its footprint, is entirely unlike a human. The Russian variety, on the other hand, may be very human indeed. For the benefit of those who fear that the killing of a Bigfoot for study would constitute not only murder but the elimination of a rare creature, Green adds firmly that there is not the slightest possibility that Sasquatches can be found human or near human, neither are they an endangered species. He believes that they are numerous. With a few suspect exceptions, Bigfoot is a gentle giant unduly monsterized by people who cannot conceive of it as a member of the animal kingdom. The Yeti has also been sensationalized out of all proportion to reality. To the Sherpers there is nothing mysterious about it. The creature has been a part of their lives and recollections for at least 200 years. Himalayan villagers and hunters include it as just another animal when discussing local fauna. If it seems elusive, it is because its habitat lies far from human paths. Himalayan hunters say that the Yeti is not a man, nor does it live in the snow zone. Its home is in the highest Himalayan forest, 
deep and almost impenetrable thickets. There it reputedly moves about on all fours and swings from tree to tree. When it ventures into the snow area, where mountaineers may glimpse it or its tracks, it walks upright with a rolling gait. The Sherpas suggest that its reason for crossing the snowfields is to seek a saline moss that grows on the rocks of moraines. Ivan Sanderson says it is not moss they seek, but lichens, which are rich in food value. The American creature appears to be slightly more gregarious and considerably more inquisitive than its Asian counterpart, but it too seems to enjoy a reclusive lifestyle. Skeptics may wonder how is it that so large and supposedly common an animal is able to elude searches with such ease. In reply, Peter Byrne, founder of the International Wildlife Conservation Society, Incorporated, points out that much of the 125,000 square miles of Sasquatch territory in the Pacific Northwest is heavily forested mountain with few roads, a sparse human population, and almost no visitors. There is plenty of room in this kind of biological sanctuary for Sasquatches and other retiring creatures to live in peaceful, unthreatened isolation. The question of identity remains. Living in impenetrable woods appears to be characteristic of the larger, hairy, upright creatures everywhere and suggests that they may be evolutionary dropouts seeking refuge from an immicable world. If a few Zyglodons and Pleosaurus have slipped through the net of time, perhaps the two-legged enigmas are relics too. Bernard Huvelmans suggests that the wild men of Asia may be leftovers of the race of Pithecanthropus, which occupied Southeast Asia at the end of the Pleistocene period, particularly the larger specimens of the ancient eight-man group called Pithecanthropus robustus and Meganthropus paleogen of Vinicus. Even pygmy varieties of the species may have survived, accounting for the smaller, unidentified, ape-like creatures that are occasionally seen. Zhao Zheng of the Peking Museum of Natural History speculates that the ape-like animals seen in around the Hubei province in the 1970s might have been descendants of Maganthropus, a giant ape-man that died out because it lacked sufficient intelligence to adapt to its environment. Other ancients are equally likely contenders. In 1935, Dutch paleontologist Ralph von Koningswald unearthed a collection of fossil teeth of Asian origin that were virtually identical to human teeth, but six times larger. He decided that the specimens must have come from a species of giant ape, probably extinct for a half a million years, which he called Gigantopithecus. But Gigantopithecus may not be extinct. Zoologist Edwin Cronin suggests that during the Pleistocene age, Asian Gigantopithecus sought safety from Homo erectus in the almost inaccessible valleys of the Himalayas. And the relatives of the giant ape, distant or near, may well have found sanctuary in the still unexplored fastnesses of the New World. I'd like to thank everyone for watching The Abominable Snowman.
Hi, my name is Steven Sindoni. I'm your host for the ongoing series, Unexplained Mysteries. Today's episode is entitled, The Wilderness Hunter, which can be found in the book entitled, Mysteries of the Unexplained, published by Reader's Digest. Theodore Roosevelt was no pushover for a tall tale, but he was impressed by a story he recounted in his book, The Wilderness Hunter, published in 1893. The incident, which had occurred many years before, was related to Roosevelt, as the latter wrote, By a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who was born and had passed all his life on the frontier, he must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains, dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream set to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was there slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors only the night before. But Bauman and his partner were adventurous and untroubled by the tale. They made camp in a small glade and went upstream to set their traps. At dusk, the young men returned. They were surprised to find that during their short absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain but at first they paid no particular heed to them. Later they examined the tracks more closely and saw that the intruder had walked upright, but the footprints were not those of a human being. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. The two men slept but little after that, and the next day stayed together as they worked. When they got back to camp, they saw that it had been again destroyed, and their camp kit and bedding tossed about. Two-leg footprints showed plainly in the soft earth along the nearby stream. The trappers spent the night sitting by a blazing fire, one or the other on guard, listening uneasily to the sound of branches crackling and something uttering a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiarly sinister sound. In the morning they decided to pick up their traps and leave that afternoon. They worked together as before until there were only three traps left yet to be collected. The sun was high, the traps were only a couple of miles from the camp, and the men agreed that Bauman would gather them while the other went back to the lean-to to pack their gear. There were three beavers in the traps, and it took Bauman some time to prepare them. With considerable uneasiness, he noted how low the sun was as he started for the campsite. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and he shouted as he approached it, but he got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thick blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive any answer to his call.
Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did, so his eye fell on the body of his friend stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around it uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back to the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, abandoning everything but his rifle, and struck off at his speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows, where the hobble ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until far beyond the reach of pursuit. This encounter with an ape-man in the wilderness of the Pacific Northwest left the young trapper so shaken that years later he still shuddered when he talked about it. Although Roosevelt himself had no similar experience during his years in the West, he did not seem to dismiss the story as far-fetched. I'd like to thank everyone for watching The Wilderness Hunter.